Good evening and welcome back to the Bison Boys podcast. I am your host, Jack Clifford, along with two of my amazing co-hosts. Awesome, Jack. How are we feeling today, boys? Welcome back. Feeling good after a, uh, a long break. Long break, but we had a, had a few things. We were busy, but now now we're back into the swing of things. Have, have, a, have a good amount to cover today. There's a lot, a lot of stuff going on sports-wise, but we're back today on a, on a little gloomy... Gloomy Thursday evening here at Nichols College, but we're getting we're getting right back into the swing of things. One more week until spring spring break, and then we are off for a bit, and then we are back in in the swing. All right, so Austin, you can kick us off with what we are talking about today. So to start things off, the Nichols College men's basketball team has won their sixth straight CCC championship over the Western New England Golden Bears by a score of 87 to 64 here at Nichols College. Pretty exhilarating game. Electric back. Electric, oh my God. That was probably one of my favorite environments ever. Ty Rucker led the way with the scoring for the Bison as he put up 24 points en route to a CCC championship. Tavon Jones had 22 points. Matt Electus had 16 points. Nate Duckworth had nine points, and then Ja'Kai Doughton had 12 points, and Quincy Farabee uh, rounded it off with four points for the Bison in the victory. That was a well-rounded game, like you said, uh, all around some great baskets, good boards on the uh, back end with Matt Electus as well as Tavon, and Shea Butta in there as well when he was getting his time. But I think scoring-wise, definitely Tyra showed Show how he is, how he's supposed to be at the at the point man, and he played a huge role this along with along with uh, Matt Electus and Tavon. The Nichols College Bison men ba- men's basketball team now begin their ter- their uh, March Madness tournament on March third on actually tomorrow yep. at three forty in Middlebury, Vermont against Rochester. They left. On the buses, we sent them off at 12, I believe it was like 12.15. They left in the Nichols College bus, of course, and they're heading to Middlebury, Vermont to play their round-robin tournament and hopefully advancing into another round. I don't think the last time we did that was, I would say, four years ago. I think that's when we, I think they made it to the Elite Eight. I think that's the first they've ever been, but trying to make it to the second round is... It's pretty hard to do, but it's gonna be it's gonna be a long battle, and I think I think they're capable of doing it. But we're just gonna have to sit back and watch. Next up, the uh, Nichols College men's volleyball team is nationally ranked for Division Three. They are ranked 15th right now on this season. Um, they're they are 11 and three on the season, and they're. Most recent game was a three to one, three sets to one victory over Emmanuel College. They play on Saturday, Bard. They play Bard here at Nichols College at 11 a.m. Was that Saturday? Yes, March 4th. Yeah, they, they've been killing it a lot. They've recruited a lot of great freshmen as well as, uh, I think they had a transfer too from, I don't know where, but they've, they've been doing a great job. Uh, keeping it consistent, and I think I don't think they've lost. Uh, they might have lost one, but I think they've been doing really good. Transitioning into our next segment, the NFL Draft Combine. Uh, the biggest news out of the Combine 
today is Bryce Young was uh, listed at the combine as five foot nine, 165 pounds. Wow. Bryce Young is projected to be the number one overall pick, if not a top five pick in this year's draft. Uh, most likely, barring any trades, going to the Houston Texans at number two uh, with the Chicago Bears holding the number one pick and they are looking to trade the number one pick according to multiple reports. Yeah, I think that's been a hot topic of trading up to get the number one pick from a lot of different places, trying to get rid of Justin Fields or trading Justin Fields to try to better that number one position for whoever may be going drafted first. Yeah, I think that's probably going to be the most interesting ones uh, to go in this pick as usual. I think that's always the the hot topic of who's going to go first. I know last year it was a pretty interesting pick to go last year, um, but we're going to see what happens this year. Moving on to uh, the other topics surrounding the NFL Combine, one that came out yesterday was Georgia defensive tackle Jalen Carter uh, is facing allegations of reckless driving and racing following the passing, the tragic passing of uh, teammate. Oh, I forget his name. Following the tragic passing of teammate offensive lineman Devin Willock and a Georgia staff member, Georgia team staff member. Uh, first off, with Jalen Carter facing these allegations, he's a potential top five pick in the NFL draft. A lot of people see him either going one to the Chicago Bears or three to the, uh, I believe it's three, to the Arizona Cardinals. Um, Carter was booked for reckless driving and racing on highways slash streets both are misdemeanors at 11:33 p.m on wednesday night he was released on a four thousand dollar bond uh about 15 minutes later according to online records an arraign an arraignment hearing it is set for april 18th in georgia it's about a week or so right before the draft so i mean i think you know like Austin and I had previously talked about this, but it's really just a waiting game. See what ends up happening at the as arraignment, and you know that's it's got to put a lot of teams in that top five, top ten for a loop because they could potentially a team like you know the Lions or the Raiders in that in that late you know that late um, top ten, you know like the six to ten range. Any team in there really could be sitting there. Maybe this guy could drop to us, and he's a top three player overall in the draft. But I'm just not sure if a team in the top five or Maybe in those guys in the late, late, um, the late top ten, or even want to take a risk on that. But again, we'll see what happens on the 18th of April. And like I said, it's about a week or so right before the draft, so that's that's going to throw a lot of people for a loop, especially with the week before the week before the draft happening, just waiting what he what's going to happen with him. Yeah, I think that waiting game is going to affect a lot of draft stock. And I know currently, right now, the um, offensive line and defensive line is going through their combine. Either it's right now or it's later in the day. But I know it's today, and then the skill guys, or I think linebackers and uh, other positions going tomorrow, and then QBs, wide receivers, running backs are going Saturday. I think is I could be wrong, but I think that I think that's correct. I don't know what time it is. I think it's later in the day, 
but they're they're all competing this week or these these next couple of days and i think it will it will set aside what what we're trying to talk about here is the waiting game of whether or not that that will affect his draft stock so i think i think we'll just have to wait and see like jack said a statement by jalen carter was released um this was released yesterday at 1 15 p.m uh Quoted by Jalen Carter, this morning I received a telephone call from the Athens, Georgia Police Department informing me that two misdemeanor warrants have been issued against me for reckless driving and racing. Numerous media reports also have circulated this morning containing inaccurate information concerning the tragic events of January 15, 2023. It is my intention to return to Athens to answer the misdemeanor charges against me and to make certain that the complete and accurate truth is presented. There is no question in my mind that when all of the facts are known that I will be fully exonerated of any criminal wrongdoing. That is a statement that was released by Jalen Carter yesterday. So uh, moving on to the NFL draft combine today is defensive linemen and defensive linemen and linebackers performing from three to eight today in Indianapolis. Uh, some things that a lot of a lot of scouts, a lot of GMs, a lot of uh, player personnel guys are looking at in the quarterback realm is the arm strength of Anthony Richardson. This guy is drawing comparisons to Cam Newton. He's drawing comparisons to several other highly athletic quarterbacks. Uh, first off, starting with Anthony Richardson, where do you guys see Anthony Richardson falling in the draft, particularly either to who or where he may be picked? And can he live up to the hype of uh, highly touted prospects such as uh, NFL MVP Cam Newton and other highly talented quarterbacks? Uh, I think I think he will stay maybe like late top ten. I don't think he's going to live up to expectations. I feel like it could be a potential like RG three incident, or he could he could do great and or maybe have like a, a late late start like a Trevor Lawrence of this league. But I feel like he could fall to a later organization that would build around him and create him into a, a better QB. And that the first person that pops in my mind that fell late into the draft pick and developed like a really good QB was Deshaun Watson. I know right now he's not, but draft-wise when he was drafted, I feel like he fell into the later round of the Houston Texans and developed into a really solid quarterback. But now he's now I feel like he would live up to expectations if he fulfills fulfills those um, expectations, I guess. Right now, he's skyrocketing to get picked high in the draft because of his skill set. I mean, guy comes to mind is a guy like Josh Allen, who came out of college, really, really raw talent. His arm strength is unbelievable. He had great mobility, but he was extremely inaccurate. We saw that in the first couple of years of Allen's career in Buffalo. Um, you know, they kind of handed him the, key, him the keys early because they just they needed to let him play. You know, you can't really you can't really teach accuracy and you know improve accuracy without without getting real life playing time so i feel like that's what's gonna end up happening with him i could see him maybe going to a team like washington maybe um they don't they're really at a question mark right now for their quarterback situation um sam howell isn't i don't think the long-term answer um maybe you let them compete in camp see what ends up happening and whoever wins wins it out but i could see him struggling early on but eventually down the road becoming a solid quarterback just because of 
you know, he's extremely athletic. He has a, like you say, he has a, a rocket for an arm. But again, there's um, there's accuracy issues there, so that's definitely something to look for, look for with him. But I think I think he's gonna crush at the combine. Yeah, so I think just like waiting on like the late start, like you said, and just letting him play, letting him cook, like to a, an organization that needs a needs a QB that has a question mark on the QB room, and I think Washington could be a great great team. I'm thinking, I don't know necessarily Detroit and watching watching Jared Goff cook and watching Jared Goff do what he does, and possibly another team like the Atlanta Falcons or even another organization. But honestly, who knows? What he could do, he could be drafted third, or he could be drafted fifteenth. I think Atlanta's another good destination for. Him. I mean, there's really there's not really a lot of weapons down there, but they do have a lot of salary cap right now. And I don't think, well, for Atlanta's sake right now, to go out and get a, a veteran guy is really going to help them out right now. I think you just got to get a young receiver for him, get, get a young wide out, and you know, they, Tyler Algier is a solid back, and the lines all right. So I think getting Anthony Richardson in an Atlanta Falcons jersey could could be a good thing for him. I think Atlanta, you know, similar to Buffalo. Atlanta and Buffalo both both have really both really struggled and then they, they got their QB in the first round and I could just see similar situations happening with Allen in Buffalo and then now if Anthony Rich ends up going to the Falcons, but again that's just a hypothetical thing. But and I just released uh, Marcus Mario so that like you said opened up a lot of uh, cap and again cap I don't, last thing before we move on, I just don't know if Ritter's really the answer for them and no. um you know, I, it'd be kind of hard to pass with Anthony Richardson if he ends up falling to you know, the, the the early teens like uh, that the Falcons have right now, I believe, or I think they have like an eight or nine. I'm I'm not sure exactly where they sit, but um, it'd be kind of hard for them to pass up on someone who has the skill set of Anthony Richardson if you know if he ends up falling there. But his his odds to go to number one overall have skyrocketed in the past couple of weeks. So it's it's all about if a team really wants to trade up and take a QB, but I don't think Richardson's worth trading up for and in the number one pick. The New England Patriots are a team that has met with quarterback Anthony Richardson at the NFL Combine right now. I mean, you look in the past couple of years, the um, the Patriots, they typically look at these top-end prospects, these higher-end prospects. I mean, everybody is. You never know what's going to happen come draft time. But with Richardson coming into that top 15 type selection the Patriots sit there at 14 um, they have Mac Jones and Bailey Zappi at quarterback on their team is this kind of just like a do your little check in type of thing or is the Patriots actually looking into Florida Gators quarterback Anthony Richardson come April I, I feel like it'd be a waste of a pick if they chose Anthony Richardson because I, I get it that Mac Jones has, has been inconsistent and we haven't really seen much of Bailey Zapp, but the only game we saw was Bailey Zapp put up a put up a light show and put up a field day. But I feel like we need to let Mac Jones work for his third year or second year. No, third year, yep. Um, but I feel like that if we choose Anthony Richardson, I feel like it would kind of be a waste and just taking up, taking up a lot of space on a QB room. It'd, it'd give Anthony Richardson a good, like, ideal person to look look up to. But, again, I feel like our QB room is, I wouldn't say good enough, but good as of right now. And if, if it falls to the point where we feel like it's right to take him, then 
I, I wouldn't be against it, but I say we could probably take another person that would be more ideal for our offense-defense scheme. But I just feel like right now, Anthony Richardson is not our top priority. I'd just like to see what Mac Jones can do with Bill O'Brien before we yep. end up just jumping the gun and you know trying to get him out of New England. You know, we took him 15th overall two years ago, and that's something you can't really just throw out throw out that fast. Um, but the QB class next year is pretty solid. So yeah. if, if that's something that they want to end up doing next year, that could be a thing. But again, you got to let him work with Bill O'Brien, see what's going to happen. He can, if he can bring the best out of Mac Jones this year, then I think the Patriots can be in a, in a solid position down the line. So every year at the NFL Draft Combine, you see top prospects. Uh, sometimes they exceed expectations, sometimes they go below it. And then also you see a lot of surprises come at NFL Draft, at the NFL Draft Combine. Uh, quickly going down the list, I'm going to go through each um, each position with the attendees at the NFL Draft Combine uh, from mainly the major positions, uh, those positions with more depth, I'm not going to go throughout the entire list, but quarterbacks, you have Tyson Bagend out of Shepard, Stetson Bennett out of Georgia, Malik Cunningham out of Louisville, Max Duggan out of TCU, Jake Hayner out of Fresno State, Jaron Hall out of BYU. Hendon Hooker out of Tennessee, Will Levis out of Kentucky, Tanner McKee out of Stanford, Aiden O'Connell out of Purdue, Anthony Richardson out of Florida, CJ Stroud out of Ohio State, Dorian Thompson Robinson out of UCLA, Clayton Toon out of Houston, and Bryce Young out of Alabama. Yeah, I think this draft class is probably one of the more underrated ones of our time, of this, uh, I would say decade even, just because with the Will Levis and the... Um, the one from UCLA. Dorian Thompson yep, and Robinson. Dorian, I feel like, and along with Bryce Young and CJ Stroud, those notable quarterbacks are probably one of the more underrated ones, but it's the it's the fact that will they exceed to their high level caliber to to the NFL, like Max Duggan and Stenson Bennett was seeing them compete against each other and it was it was uh one one sided game I would say, but so Max Duggan is considered one of the top five quarterbacks in last year's league. So it's there's a lot of QBs that potentially could go to the Patriots, but I would say I don't think any of them would go to us in the first round. I think we would choose either a lineman or a DB, I would hope, but who knows. Who do you guys see as the uh, quarterback standout, the guy that ra raises his draft stock a lot? For me... I'm looking at a guy like Jake Hayner or Max Duggan. I feel like that uh, Hayner in particular is underrated coming from Fresno State and everything, and he has a real shot to shine at the NFL Draft Combine and show all 32 teams that, hey, I'm, I'm capable of being one of these top quarterbacks. Max Duggan is one of those guys that, I mean, we saw how he was at TCU. We saw how he played. Uh, throughout the college football playoffs. Max Duggan has that grit. He has that motivation, that willpower to go out there and be a top quarterback. Um, it's hard hard to look at a guy in college because the NFL is bigger, stronger, and faster. But Max Duggan is one of those guys that you could look at into next season uh, as 
somebody like a Brock Purdy type of player who the starter goes down and hey I need a I need some guy that can go out there and make plays for me I feel that looking into the NFL draft in April Max Duggan is a guy that you're gonna see in that realm of a Brock Purdy the guy that they can go out trust that's underrated and Jake Hayner is another guy that can fall into that same exact category I think Jaron Hall is another guy that you know might be able to raise his stock to maybe a second, third round guy. Yeah, he's a little bit more athletic than people give him credit for. And, and at BYU, he, he they played pretty solid this year. For you know, they've had they had some tough opponents, a couple of tough games. But I think throughout the draft process and the combine process, he's going to be able to you know show his athletic ability. I think that's gonna that's gonna raise some scouts' eyes and um, help get his name on the map a little bit more. I can agree with uh, Max Duggan as well, but another QB I want to talk, talk about is Will Levis. Uh, he came back to Kentucky, did his grad year, and he he actually had a really good year this year, and he's projected to go to the Colts, but I feel like that's probably one of the best fits for Colts. He kind of resembles a Matt Ryan E in a way, along with kind of an Andrew Luck combo, but I feel like he's been, he's been phenomenal last year in the past few years. And I think he he's one of one of my underrated picks in this draft, I would say. And I think best fit for him would most likely be the Colts or depending on how the um depending on how the Packers go, I, f- I think he could I think he could sit behind Jordan Love for a year or two and see what see what happens with them. So a lot of people look at like the running back draft class and uh it's kinda it's B. John Robinson from Texas at the top, and then there's kind of that gap. And then who would you guys say is the second best running back in this year's draft class? For me, I'm going to go with Tank ba- uh, Tank Bagsby. Uh, I believe it's out of Oklahoma. He's out of Oklahoma State. Uh, let me double check real quick. He's out of uh, Auburn. Yeah. I feel like he's a guy that uh, if you want to, if you need a guy that can get the job done, he's not going to be a star back in the NFL. He's not going to be a part of that, um, that uh, those type of guys such as like a Derrick Henry type of role where it's that number one back and then there's nobody. I feel like um, he can fall into that, that running back committee that like the 49ers have with Elijah Mitchell, Christian McCaffrey and all them. Or another running back committee such as Damian Harris and Ramondre Stevenson in New England. He's <clears throat> he's one of those guys that can be that solid second back where if you need to give uh, your number one back a little bit of a break, he can go in and still get the job done like a number one running back. And a guy that comes to mind that falls into that same exact category in terms of the free agency class is Alexander Madison, uh, the former, well not former, the current Minnesota Vikings running back who will be a free agent in this upcoming offseason. What was the running back uh, running back for was it TCU? Kendra Miller. I th- yeah, I think it was Kendra Miller. It was either him or the Georgia one. But besides that, watching TCU throughout the uh, college playoffs, I think that when TCU would be down I think they would rely on him as their like go-to for 
a second and long or a third and short. I think that was kind of their reliant of that, like, that go-to guy. Because I feel like they obviously had Max Duggan and a lot of other high-class high weapons, but their running back was pretty prestigious, and I feel like he could fall it behind in the New York Giants organization after a stellar season uh, with Saquon having a, having a breakout year, as well as Daniel Jones and Sterling Shepard coming out of the show a little bit, and I think that he could fall into a good running back room along with Saquon. I like that idea too, but instead of Keandre Miller, I'm thinking more of a uh, Emery DiMarcado. He was a good running back for TCU and a guy that just fell into place and was able to get the carries, was able to get the tough, the tough running yards. And he's one of those uh, power back type of running backs that I feel you could see on an NFL goal line or on a short yardage situation. Uh, one running back I look at is Israel Benacanda from Pitt. He's um, extremely underrated. He, I believe he led the nation in rushing yards, which is extremely impressive considering you know, the talent or talented running backs are in college football right now. But he is a, he's a really good balance of power and speed, and I think he just fits the prototypical NFL running back size-wise and the way he plays. He's around 5'10". 210 pounds and he just he runs really hard but you if you get him in the open field it's really hard to catch him as well so I, I look for him to go in maybe, maybe the second third round I mean really any team that doesn't have like a top tier running back I think at this point would end up taking the swing on him but I, I, I look for him to to really do well his rookie year and try to get some, get some carries and I think he'd make a difference in terms of wide receivers in this upcoming NFL draft class, you have three that are kind of on that same level that you can interchange at that number one wide receiver role. Those three guys are Quinton Johnston out of TCU, Jordan Addison out of USC, and Jackson Smith Najigba out of Ohio State. And then uh, it's kind of you have that little bridge there between uh, Zay to Zay Flowers, Tank Dell, Josh Downs, Jalen Hyatt. Um, out of this wide receiver class, I see a guy like Jordan Addison being the number one receiver out of this draft class. Uh, Pro Football Focus has Quinton Johnston ranked above Jordan Addison, but out of those three, those are really interchangeable receivers. And with... Uh, Caleb Williams at USC. Jordan Addison did see a lot of a lot of the passes towards him, and just the way the way that he was able to just perform despite having not really that second best receiver on the team, and still be USC's number one receiver. There's no clear cut number one receiver this year. As next year, you'll see Marvin Harrison Jr. be that clear-cut receiver but what do you guys think who is the number one receiver on your guys's draft boards I like Jordan Addison I think he is he's a really good route runner and his speed I think is something that can take a top off the defense um I'm not really high on Quinn Johnson at all I don't think he creates a lot of separation um you know physically being 6'4 210 is is a really hard matchup for most corners in the NFL but again, I don't think, you know, he's a great route runner. He doesn't create a lot of separation in his routes and, and during games. Um, 
that 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 could something that can be taught, you know, refined. But right now, I think Jordan Addison is the number one guy coming in this draft class. Yeah, I, I can agree with that. Jordan Addison lit it up this year, but I can say more underrated number one pick and has been getting a lot of uh, getting a lot of feed from the media. I think keeping a native uh, with the Zay Flowers and uh, he actually I actually watched a lot of BC games and he was kind of the he was kind of the focal point of the whole offense. As an athletic, he could fall into a great organization. Hopefully, the Patriots. I feel like we need a need a speedy guy like Zay Flowers. But I, I would I'm excited to see what what he does next year in this draft combine. Moving on to the tight end position, there's really only two names that you see, and one is one is uh, Michael Mayer out of Notre Dame and Darnell Washington out of Georgia as the top two tight ends in this year's draft. And then you have another guy who's kind of in that mix in Dalton Kincaid out of Utah. But between Mayer, Kincaid, and Washington, who would you guys trust the most as your tight end one? For me, I would go with Michael Mayer. I mean, he has all the hype behind him. His nickname is Baby Gronk. I don't know how um, how you want to go about that, but Mayer has probably one of the highest floors out of any of the NFL draft prospects. He can go as high as possibly the next Travis Kelsey, George Kittle type of player, and as low as uh, tight ends such as Hunter Henry, um, Hayden Hurst, solid tight ends in the league. I mean, that's my pick for my number one tight end on my draft board. What about you guys? I have to agree. It's not really, I think it's really a far gap between Mayer and, you know, Darnell Washington, I think, is um, really up there because of his size. I don't, he didn't really, he wasn't used a lot in the passing game. Uh, he was just more of like a big body run blogger for Georgia. Um, guy I, I kind of look at is Luke Musgrave out of Oregon State as well. I, I would see him as a as the second or third best at worst option for tight ends here in this draft class. Um, I think him, I think Musgrave and Meyer both are really good pass catching, but I think Meyer's a little bit of a bigger body and fits the, the more of the mold of an NFL tight end, blocks a little bit more. But um, definitely, definitely Meyer, Meyer. I'm not sure if. He's first round worthy right now, but I definitely think he's the number one guy for uh, I can probably agree with Austin about Mayer. I think I watched it was like a pregame before Notre Dame, whoever they're playing interview, and they, they had a interview with him, and he just like as he was talking, he just had that dog in him. He just looked like he was just ready to go no matter what what day it is, what time it was. He just always ready to go, especially with his with his height and just how big he is. He could definitely live up to the expectations of the Travis Kelseys and the and the Gronks of our of our age. So I feel like that we would probably go Mayor and then Washington Musgrave back and forth. Moving on to offensive tackles, this is another one that you can see three guys interchange for that top guy on the draft board and those three guys being Paris Johnson, Junior out of Ohio State. Peter Skaronsky out of Northwestern and Broderick Jones out of Georgia. For me, and this might come as a surprise to people because a lot of these guys, a lot of uh, NFL, NFL analysts and fans view this guy as the third best tackle in the draft. 
but I like Peter Skaronsky. Um, he's one of those guys that you can interchange at any offensive line position, uh, similar to Isaiah Wynn when he was at Georgia or a Cole Strange when he was at uh, Chattanooga. Uh, Peter Skaronsky played with Rashawn Slater at Northwestern, and I believe it was Rashawn Slater, um, at Northwestern, and he's one of those guys that when teams are now looking at offensive linemen, they're looking at guys that can be interchangeable at any position, whether that be guard, tackle, and even center. And Skaronsky has the size, he has the build, he has the motor to be that type of guy that you can move anywhere and he can be solid at any position across the offensive line. Yeah, definitely he's the most versatile, I would say, right now. Um, just because size-wise, you know, arm length isn't, you know, the, the big, the long, he doesn't really have the longest arms. I think, you know, intangible-wise, he's not going to look like a prototypical left tackle or tackle, if you will, in the NFL. And, you know, having that versatility and maybe convert him to a guard is something that um, teams are looking. But I, I think Paris Johnson for right now is the number one guy because I think he just meets exactly what the NFL wants out of a tackle right now. And um, he protected CJ Stroud pretty well this season. Um, so that's that's who I would go with. But you can't overlook Broderick Jones' size and you know the, what he has, the power that he that he has. I think six eight, three sixty. That's like Trent Brown type of mold, which is something that's you know it's so easy to work with because of his his frame. But I think Paris Johnson for right now is the most NFL ready tackle in the draft. Going off of the next three positions, just to knock it off, um, this really isn't up for debate, according to a lot of NFL analysts and pro football focus. Interior offensive line, their number one guy is Andrew Voorhees out of USC. Um, if you guys want to add anything to interior O-line. Uh, D-line, in terms of interior D-line, it's Jalen Carter. And yeah, then sure. edge rusher is Will Anderson. Tyree Wilson is a guy to watch, though. He's been, he also is a guy that has a lot of, he has a lot of raw power and speed coming off the edge. And he's a big guy, too. I believe he's like 6'6", six, six, around 260, 270, which, which is a pretty big size for a guy who's able to come up, come, um, come off the edge. But he, he's also been kind of flying up some draft boards, too. So I wouldn't be surprised if he goes, you know, top five. As for linebackers, this is one that anybody is up for grabs here. And uh, right now, according to Pro Football Focus, their number one rated linebacker is Day Dayon Henley out of Washington State. But I'd have to go with Noah Sewell out of Oregon. And I know, Jack, you're a big Oregon guy. Um, he's one of those guys that can just fit the mode, uh, not the mode, the mold, and be that solid linebacker that can anchor the middle um, he's not one of those guys that is going to wow you as uh, Fred uh, Fred Warner, a Bobby Wagner in his prime, but he's one of those solid linebackers that I feel he can mold into any defense and be that solid run stopper, kind of like a Leighton Vander Esch uh, type of player who isn't a star, but he's solid and can get the job done when needed. Yeah, I 
obviously I'll watch a lot of Oregon football, like you said, and he has a lot of, he has great sideline and sideline speed, which I think is a little bit underrated part of his game, considering he's, yeah, I believe he's around 250, 260 pounds, which, which is a bigger body for a middle linebacker, but I, I think that he could go second round and be a pretty solid player immediately. And you see a lot of guys like who, who don't go as early, but are able to make an impact immediately. And I think that's something Noah Sewell can bring to the table. As for cornerbacks, uh, number one rated, according to Pro Football Focus, is Dave, Devon Witherspoon out of Illinois, and then two is Christian Gonzalez. This is where I'm going to have to go with another Oregon guy here. I feel like Christian Gonzalez is the best corner in this draft. He, watching him, he just reminds me of that nice physical corner, uh, kind of a Brandon Browner type of corner, almost not uh, man or zone coverage, but someone that can go up against one of these top physical receivers, uh, thinking of guys like T Higgins and guys like that. Christian Gonzalez for me is my number one corner on my draft board. Uh, I know a lot of people, a lot of people are going with Davon Witherspoon out, out of Illinois though. I like the Christian Gonzalez. Um pick because like you said of his physicality his size for a corner is yeah he's going to be one of the bigger corners in the league immediately and um yeah he's not he doesn't really he's not really a, a master at either one that man or zone but i feel like for right now whatever scheme you put him in he's going to be able to succeed immediately but not be you know amazing i don't think he's going to come out of the draft and you know be like Sauce or like a, a Tariq Wollin or even a Stingley in a way that are going to make that direct, you know, stardom impact. But I believe wherever he goes, he's going to make him be a solid player for them and end up just developing his game to become a great corner. Uh, one guy I think that has fallen back a little bit is Cam Smith from South Carolina. Uh, you know, he was close to the unanimous number one corner for the entire college football season. He was up there with him and Christian Gonzalez are really just interchangeable for no one guys, but he's kind of falling back to that third or fourth role, and I think that some team in the you know, mid-first round is going to get a stud of a corner, and he's going to end up, you know, succeeding wherever he goes. I think I think he'll be the guy to make a direct impact, whichever team he gets chosen to. Lastly, safeties. Um, this is kind of split between both of the Alabama safeties, Brian Branch and Jordan Battle. Um, out of the two, uh, Brian Branch is the number one rated safety according to Pro Football Focus. But I like the Jordan Battle type of player. I'm a big fan of guys like Kyle Duggar and Isaiah Simmons and Adrian Phillips, guys that you can slot in at linebacker, slot in at safety, be that coverage guy for tight ends, be that run stopper, that hard hitter. I like Jordan Battle. Jordan Battle would be my pick here, but of course, uh, people look at different aspects and safeties. But my number one guy is Jordan Battle. You know, obviously, it just depends on you know schematically whatever you like to run. But I think Brian Branch is a little bit more. He's more of a covered safety. Um, you know, he both obviously both Bama safeties are gonna do well. They've been well coached since throughout college. And but I think both those guys are really interchangeable when it comes to you know deep thirds, you know, deep halves, playing the slot, 
coming down. But I think Jordan Battle's the bigger body. He's able to, you know, be in the box a little bit more. But I, I like Brian Branch because he's more versatile on the back end. And Brian and Jordan Battle is more of a, a box guy. But I think they're both, the versatility for both of them is evident. But again, like I said, I think Jordan Battle is more of the box guy. I like, And I like Brian Branch being more of the, the coverage guy. Moving on, it's winter here in New England, and winter means hockey and basketball, but mainly hockey here in New England. And man, what a time is it to be a Boston Bruins fan. And even better now that David Pasternak has re-signed with the Boston Bruins for an eight-year, $90 million deal as the Bruins lock up their franchise player for the next eight years. First off, how do you guys feel about the David Pasternak resigning? I'm absolutely ecstatic that Sweeney got this done because he was going to go somewhere and he was going to have almost every team calling his phone, him and his agent, to try to get him to go there. I'm so glad that they locked him up because that's a guy, he's been a staple of our team ever since, you know, he, ever since he arrived. And without him, I don't know how well our team would still do because he's that much of an impact player and we have the deepest team in the league. That, that's saying a lot, you know, because of how good Pasternak is. But bringing him back, he's 27 right now. He's going to be here until he's 34, and he'll probably end up being here forever, just like Marsha and Bergeron and, you know, all those guys. And I, I'm really glad that Don Sweeney brought him back, and Don Sweeney's been uh, swinging a hot bat lately trying to get get a lot of guys. So. Stanley Cup. Uh. <clears throat> On the not-so-light news right now for the Bruins, uh, they did place Taylor Hall on long-term IR and Nick Foligno on IR as they call up Jakob Lacko, uh for their upcoming game against the Buffalo Sabres tonight. But with both those players going on IR, it's looking like they will be back by time for the playoffs. The Bruins, late last night, called up the Detroit Red Wings and traded for right winger Tyler Bertuzzi from the Red Wings. Now, the Bruins just keep making moves. When one guy goes down, another guy comes in, and the Bruins are just having depth across the board. With the new acquire acquisition with Tyler Bertuzzi it looks like he will be slotting in on Coyle's line which is the third line for the Bruins as they keep the consistency with Marshan Bergeron and DeBrusque at the first line and Zaka Krejci and Pasternak at the second line Bertuzzi's fit, uh, sliding into where Nick Foligno was on the, on the third line with Coyle and Frederick how do you guys feel about the Bertuzzi acquisition? It's a great addition for the third line because I believe once Hall comes back, I think if you got to put Hall back in the in the second line, you bring down Zaka to the third line and you put Frederick down to the fourth line where you know, he made a living out of the past couple of seasons in Boston. So, but just keep keep on adding depth is just it's such a luxury that we have right now. It's you're having two guys that are out right now. Fligno, I believe, just got he's on IR as well, along with Hall. So having those two guys out, but just have it, but acquiring, you know, three guys to come back in and fill their roles is just—it's, it really is. It's such a luxury that Don Sweeney is bringing to the Bruins right now, and you know, injuries are obviously a part of sports, and you you don't hope that people get hurt, 
but I, I think if that a couple people get hurt, we're gonna have you know the depth to be able to still compete at a high level with even with injuries to our good players, hypothetically, of course. Yeah, I think it's tough losing Hall as well as Foligno, but I feel like the that addition um, kind of revived us in a way. But it, I think that didn't really make a difference of bringing him back. It's just like just a replacement and just a continuous to keep going and keep dominating this league. So I think that Burns are killing it and having, having depth is probably one of the best feelings in the world and, and sports in general. Just so you can sub guys out, get them back in and keep rotating that position out. I feel like put, putting them in that third line with, with the hometown native of Weymouth Mass, Charlie Coyle, um, help them out a lot. Uh, analysts are predicting when Hall and Felino come back for the playoffs that Hall will slide into the second line in the left, left winger <coughs> position with Krejci. The first line is going to stay consistent with March, Marchand, Bergeron, and DeBrusque. Uh, Hall will slide into the left winger spot where it is currently held by Pavel Zaka, where the second line would be Hall, Krejci, Pasternak. The third line would be uh, Felino, Coyle, and Bertuzzi when Felino comes back, which means that Zaka would drop down to the fourth line at the left winger position with um, Nosek and either Frederick or Hathaway. And looking at the defensive pairings, the Bruins have a crowded defensive room right now, but they figured out how to how to um, put in their top guys back in as Forbort is unfortunately the guy that has been moved from the defensive pairing position. And Lindholm and McAvoy are now the first line for the defense. Dmitry Orlov, who they acquired from the Washington Capitals. Um, I almost said Washington Senators. Um <laughs> Orlov has been a guy that he's just come in and lit up the Bruins defenseman pairings with a five-point performance against the Calgary Flames the other night. Orlov is now sliding in with Brandon Carlo in that second defenseman pairing, and Grizzlick drops down to the third defenseman pairing with Connor Clifton. This defense has depth across the board with Forbort being another guy and then you have Jakob Zabroil in Providence right now grooming to come in and be the next top defenseman along with multiple other guys in Providence. This defense is young. They're hungry. They're physical. Exactly what you want to see in Boston for not only this year but years to come. And if something happens in the winger role, you can always have Clifton move into a winger position as he's one of those offensive minded defensemen. He's he's speedy, he's fa he's fast, he's got good handles with the stick. Um Clifton can just rotate anywhere up along the Bruins lines and it's hard for him to not be out there on the ice at the time with the Bruins. Um as we talk about the depth that the Bruins have the depth they have is not only good players, but they're also young players. Sweeney hasn't built this team just for winning this year. 
they're able to win this year and for a long time coming now that they re-signed Pasternak, brought in guys like Tyler Bertuzzi, and these younger guys such as A.J. Greer, Pavel Zaka, Trent Frederick, Garnett Hathaway, Charlie Coyle, they're learning from guys like Marsh and Bergeron and Krejci, ready to pr produce for the Bruins, not only this year, but also down the line. How do you guys feel about the future of the Boston Bruins from all the moves they've made recently? I think it's great. Uh, we're seeing it now because in the next couple of years we're going to be seeing some, seeing some light shows and puck going in back in the net. I think we love seeing that for the Bruins and lighting up TD Garden or wherever they are. They're going to be they're going to be killing it. and having young young teams, whatever sport it is. It's it's probably one of the best feelings in the world. I said that about having depth, but having young depth is probably one of the best things to have. As an organization, I think, like you said, Sweeney's been killing it. He's been a great addition since he's got here, like Jack said. And we have a bright future ahead of us, and we already started right now. So the next couple of years, it's going to be it's going to be Bruins at, at the top for the next couple of years for sure. I think it's unfortunate to look at, but it almost seems like they're kind of just trying to get younger guys and get depth for preparing for Martian and Bergeron to you know end up hanging it up because you know they're both getting up there in age and. Bergeron was really considering retiring after the last year. Uh, you know, his body's been beat up for a while, and he's been suffering injuries. So, but definitely having the youth, it, like Jack said, is is just a great advantage for an organization. But I think that they're—I don't think they're just getting young and getting depth for nothing. I think it's they got—they're gonna be preparing for either guys to leave who want a bigger role that are maybe you know, maybe in the, our third line right now that want to move up and get some more minutes other places. Or they're preparing for you know two of our best guys like Bergeron and Martian to um, hang up the hang up the skates. But again, you can't go wrong with having young guys and especially having third, fourth line guys that would probably play on second lines at, at a lot of other team, at a lot of other organizations. So um, what a time to be a Bruins fan! But we um, playoff hockey is a different 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 sport. So we gotta we should all hunker down and be even better in the playoffs. Moving on to the MLB, there was several rule changes that you're now seeing in effect for spring training, one of them being the elimination of the shift. Uh, teams now have to have two infielders on either side of second base. And how do you guys feel about the new implementation of the elimination of the shift? Uh, I saw a thing, and it was like with all the rules that they just implied this year, they're trying to make the game shorter and trying to make it more entertaining for the fans. So I guess it's not necessarily for the player engagement, but it's more so for the the media and fan engagement. Because I guess that kind of brings in the aspect of the whole sport. Because if you have no one watching a baseball game, then no one's going to play to their perfection. So like the with the stealing or the bigger bases, it's trying to emphasize more stealing and more action-packed on the base path. So it's to get more people out and, or it's to get people on base to create that faster game because we all ba we all know baseball is a slow game. But creating the dynamic of having bigger bases or creating the time clock or creating the the rules of the shift, like that, the, there's going to be loopholes to that and there's going to be a lot of questions about certain things that things come up in a game and there's a reason why they're starting it in the minor leagues 
and in the summer leagues is because there's going to be loopholes and there's going to be some there's going to be some malfunctions. So it's a good time to start now, and we'll see what happens with it. But I I I honestly like it. The bigger bags, um, I think it's more for safety precaution, which is which is a good thing because people get hurt in baseball, which is whether you like it or not. But people get hit. I know for experience, but. I, I, I agree with all the rules, and we'll just see how it plays out. Uh, as Jack just mentioned, with the new base size, the new base sizes, the bases are now 18 inches square. They were previously 15 inches square. Uh, so that shortens the distance kind of between first and second, second and third. But uh, if you look at the st stats behind stolen bases in the recent years, the MLB has seen a very drastic decline in stolen bases. And now with the uh, bases being larger, you're gonna see an increase in stolen bases across the league. Another new rule going with the stolen bases and the larger base sizes is that pitchers are now limited to a maximum of two pickoff attempts per plate appearance. If a pitcher attempts a third pickoff throw and does not get the runner out, it is an automatic balk, and all runners move up a base. That's yeah, extremely unfortunate. It is, it is crazy, but like I said, it's it's to get the game moving. And every time you think of the word baseball, you think of slow pace, and you think of, oh, it's, that's going to be boring. Like, if you want to go to a baseball game, it's going to be boring. Like, either way, it's it's going to be pretty boring. But the ideology of this and the belief of this is to make the game go faster and make it more consistent because sometimes there could be there could be high action pack stuff going on and as well as next inning it, it could be the most boring inning ever so it's it's kind of to keep the game consistent to keep it rolling faster and to keep guys moving and to keep guys rest I, not restricted but i i think the best word i could put it in already said is consistent yeah, I mean, the bigger base path, I think, is, I think it goes hand in hand with the shift. It's, you know, like we've seen the decline in, you know, teams batting, like at team averages batting over 300 and, you know, players batting over 300 has been, is such a, such a lost cause compared to five years ago, 10 years ago. And I think getting rid of the shift creates more base hits gets the people uh, different approaches at the plate. And you see a lot of guys that are fast, you know, that'll go out there. Guys, you say, oh, this, they need to be running. They need to get around the bases. Like, you'll see guys that are extremely fast, but they won't steal because it's a completely different approach. But I think shortening or making the bases bigger, getting rid of the shift, I think, it's, I think they're trying to make the game back to what it used to be a little bit more instead of, you know, half the league batting under 250. Yo, but hitting all these home runs, striking out more. I think they're trying to level out the game between hitting and pitching and changing the hitters' approaches to the plate. I think it's just all working for a balance, and I, I, I'm, I'm all for it. I, I love, I'd rather see a guy slap 320 on the year than you know hit than hit 45 home runs a year, but bat two, 230. That's not that's not really what I like to see in baseball. I, I like to see balance between a pitcher's duel or. A, I'd rather see a pitcher's duel and people get clutch base hits and win a game two to one than you know have you know, have a ten to eight blow a ten to eight shootout type of a game with you know, home runs all over the place. But you know it's striking out all the time. It's I think the approaches 
are being changed, and I, I, I'm all for it. At least that's how I, I perceive all these rule changes. The most controversial one so far has been the implementation of the pitch clock. I know, Jack, you alluded to it, to it earlier, how they're try, trying to increase the pace of play in the game. Uh, the new rule for the pitch clock pitch clock is that there is a 30 second timer between batters and a time limit between pitches after receiving a ball from the catcher or umpire pitchers are required to begin their motion within 15 seconds with empty bases or within 20 seconds with runners on base if they don't they are charged with an automatic ball hitters also share the responsibility to keep the game moving they must be in the batter's box and ready to for the pitch by time the clock reaches eight seconds if not they're charged with an automatic strike and a batter can call a timeout only once per plate appearance. How do you guys feel about the pitch? Well, I can allude to one of the spring ball games that happened, I think, last week, and the game was a tie game, and it ended in the timer running out, and it was a tie ball game, and it ended in a strike. I know you just talked about that. 6-6 six so, six tie yeah. between the Red Sox and the Braves yep, with the bases loaded, 3-2 count yeah, in so, the bottom of the ninth. Inning. Yeah, so I think that adds an aspect of it of, the draw or the tie game so i think that like it's kind of an interesting thing to watch and it's like you go up to that suspense and it's like oh by the way we have a time clock and it's like ah oh. so it's like creates the the gray area of you can't really be mad at anything but the time clock and you just need to be it's kind of a more aware thing but i i like it but i'm not sure what you guys think about that uh, i think it's it's Hitters and pitchers are going to get used to it always down the road. It's kind of a overreaction to say, you know, it's a bad rule right now. Um, but again, I, I I don't know, like, what the what the grand, you know, their main goal of adding this into the game is, is you're going to increase, you're going to decrease the time of the game by a half hour, give or take, depending on, you know, how long, how, you know, depending on how, how much hitting there is, how many outs, you know, how quick it goes. But... I think they're doing it for the wrong reasons. You're gonna try to decrease the time of the game to try to get more viewers, but it, it, it's they're gonna try to get more viewers that, like me, us three could sit down and watch a, a three-hour baseball game with no pitch clock. That's not a, you know that's not a problem to us. They're trying to get people. Done it in the past. I've I've <laughs> yeah, done it. I've done it my entire life. So it's, yeah. you know, it's they're trying to draw in people that you know either that don't like baseball because, oh, it takes too long. That's the audience you're trying to get. If you don't like baseball, you don't like baseball. I doubt the percentage of amount of people, the percentage of people that don't watch baseball simply for the reason that it's too long of a game right, is boring. is minimal. And to try to raise that many viewers by shortening a game a half hour, which a half hour in regular time is an inning, give or take, an inning and a half, Usually, about three innings without the pitch clock lasted about an hour. That's why the games are about three hours long or so. So they're trying to essentially shorten the time frame by an inning and a half while keeping, obviously, the nine-inning game. So I don't – I think they're doing it for the wrong reasons, and I, I'm curious to see you know, down the road how this affects hitters and affects pitchers. And, you know, I, I really hope that – in some meaningful game in you know late in the regular season or in the playoffs that a pitcher or hitter doesn't get an automatic ball or strike due to them you know not not it being in the batter's box or starting their wide up in time so that would, that would just be an unfortunate way to end a game because that's people not being set and not starting quick enough is due to them 
due to their routines and throwing people off like that, it's, I, I just think it's for the wrong. I completely agree with you, Jack, on the pitch clock and everything. I've played baseball for pretty much my entire life and I've personally playing baseball, I found, found it calming and relaxing and I know that's kind of uh, an oxymoron almost. <laughs> Uh, with how long a game is and how competitive a baseball game can be, but it's baseball. I mean, that's the fun in it is that how long it can be. And I know a lot of people that aren't, that kind of just watch it to watch it are like, man, this is dragging on. But I mean, it's part of the game. You can't really, you can't make the game last an hour. Um, I mean, there you can, but uh with the pitch clock and now the games being shorter us being sport management majors the marketing and advertisement and sponsorships you're going to see a drastic decline in those prices now that fans aren't exposed to these advertisements and sponsorships at a constant basis and at a longer extended period of time i mean granted um this is, um, it's not, fans don't go to a game to see the advertisements, but I know when I think of Fenway Park, for example, I know it's not there anymore, but you had the giant John Hancock sign over the center field Jumbotron. You have the Sam Adams Club in right field. And then of course, all the advertisements on the Green Monster. Those have an effect on you, whether or not, um, whether or not you're a baseball fan or not. When you're out in your day-to-day -day life, you're gonna think in the back of your head when you're trying to decide between something um, that, for example, if you're looking for insurance, um, the one that's gonna come to your mind if you're a Red Sox fan is uh, John Hancock insurance because of the giant John Hancock sign in center field. It's just something you correlate with everything. John Hancock and the Red Sox, Sam Adams and Boston and the Red Sox and the Bruins and everything. And with this less time as fans are exposed to it, you're going to see a constant decrease in the spending that these organizations and companies are spending for advertisements for baseball games. And with that, people don't see it in the moment, but a lot of these advertisements and sponsorships go into how much money these players are making and how much money each team has in terms of spending money. So, I mean, we just saw this past off season, uh, Xander Bogarts is making almost 300 million a year. And then um, like the Padres are looking to uh, re-sign Juan, Juan Soto now. These contracts are going to start decreasing because the owners and teams just don't have the money to do it because the sponsorships are wanting to spend less money because fans are going to see less of the sponsorships and advertisements. So I don't like the pitch clock in terms of a sport management point of view and for a fan point of view, I just love watching a baseball game. Uh, if I'm at Fenway, I know the games can be long and they get boring after a while, but if it's a close tight game and the, the pitch clock is affecting these close tight games and affecting the outcome of a game, you're going to see it 
similar to how people are saying the NFL scripted and how refs call different penalties depending on the course of the game and the lack thereof of penalties. The pitch clock's just going to correlate exactly with that. I don't like the pitch clock at all, and I think we can all agree on that standpoint across the board. Yeah, for sure. Um, our last part of the day and our uh, episode today, we're all fans of the Red Sox here. ALE standing predictions for the regular season. Currently, the Red Sox are the only team in either the Grapefruit League or the Cactus League of spring training to be undefeated. The Red Sox have three wins, zero losses, and two ties currently on the spring training. And as we speak, the Red Sox are in the seventh inning of an 11-3 ball game where they are beating the reigning NL champions, Philadelphia Phillies. Granted, it's only spring training, but the Red Sox are looking good right now. And... Uh, looking at the other teams, the Yankees are the next best team from the AL East at four and two, and also granted this is all all spring training. The Toronto Blue Jays are also sitting there at three and three. The Tampa Bay Rays are at two and two, and the Baltimore Orioles are at two and three. What is your guys' predictions for the five teams in the AL East who almost all five made the playoffs last year? Uh, I can see the Red Sox squeaking into a wild card. Um, it's going to be really hard to put them over a couple teams like the you know, the Yankees and the Blue Jays. Um, I think the pitching is just going to separate the Red Sox from other teams. I mean, you, there's just so many question marks. You know, you don't know how sales going to be. You know, Pavetta is obviously up there in age. James Paxton, they're going to try to rely on him to pitch for us again. Corey Kluber. Corey Kluber has been getting absolutely shelled in spring training. You know, I saw so many videos live at bats. It's, this guy lit up Corey Kluber today. This guy got a home run off Kluber today. It's this, that off Corey Kluber. It's not, not, it's not looking amazing right now. And yeah, I don't know what they're going to do with Whitlock. They have right now. They have six or seven guys that could start in a rotation, and I think they're probably going to rotate pitchers a lot like that for now. Maybe, maybe keep it a six man for a while, but it's. I think it's just to come out of pitching. I think our bullpen is going to be able to hold up, but our starting pitching is going to be either really short-lived, meaning they're going to throw four or five innings, bring the guys from the pen in, or it's, I'm not sure. It's. I think that's a really question mark for the Red Sox if they're starting pitching. Yeah, I think I can agree. I don't know if they're going to do as amazing as they did last year. I think they might squeak the playoff berth or even a simple wild card. But I think the loss of a few highlights that we had of the J.D. Martinez and Xander Bogarts, I think we might... I think we might do okay, but I don't. I wouldn't say great, but I think I think we'll be. I think we'll be all right if we just get our pitching situation figured out and we get we find another superstar. I, I wouldn't even say superstar, just kind of a vet in a way, to kind of solidify our our hopes. I I wouldn't even call it hopes, just our chances of making playoffs. But I just we'll just have to wait and see. I agree with what you had to say, Jack. Um, the Red Sox starters, you're not going to see long innings out of them. The one guy that you might see a long inning from is Chris, I'm uh, long outing rather, is from Chris Sale. But with the bolstered bullpen that they have, you're going to see Alex Cora rely on those bullpen arms. I don't see Whitlock staying in the rotation for 
a while, for a long period of time in the season. Eventually, you're going to have guys like Brian Bello come up. Brandon Walter has looked phenomenal for the Red Sox so far. He's a starter on the uh, Worcester Red Sox right now. Um, you're going to see a shift towards the end of the season and guys like Corey Kluber, um, Nick Pavetta. Right now, the rotation's looking like it's going to be Sale, Paxton, Pavetta, Kluber, Whitlock, somewhere in there. I think by the end of the season, uh, this is my prediction for the Red Sox um, rotation by the end of the year. You're going to see Sale, Pavetta, Bello, Walter, Hauk in the Red Sox rotation. I don't see Paxton, Kluber sticking around for the entire season. I don't see Bloom wanting to hold on to them if you have these highly ta talented prospects coming up. And then a sixth guy you can throw in there is Brian Mata. I mean, there weren't Hauk started today's game where the Red Sox are winning eleven to three over the Phillies right now, and he looked great as a starter. Fifteen three, they just hit a grand slam. Oh, well, there we go. Fifteen to three now over the Philadelphia Phillies. Hauk looked great. It's gonna be hard to he's gonna be a major pitcher for them in some aspect, whether it be out of the bullpen or in the rotation for the Red Sox this year. But I, when they lost Sander Bogarts in free agency, I didn't know what to think. But now, seeing how good this team has been in spring training, I'm getting excited for the season. And, of course, I'm a Red Sox fan no matter what. And that's sometimes that's hard to say. But it's going to be an exciting season for the Red Sox. Uh, definitely have to figure out what's going on in center. Uh, whether that be Kiki, Jaron Duran, or Rafaela. I personally would like to see Rafaela there. Um, and then you also have Emmanuel Valdez, who's been lighting it up. Ryan Fitzgerald, who could be on the Red Sox opening day roster. And it's, in terms of all of Boston sports, the Celtics are at the top, the Bruins are at the top, the Patriots and Red Sox are those average teams, but have the potential to be great teams as the Patriots have a lot in cap space. The Red Sox are getting younger. It's an exciting time to be a Boston sports fan, and we'll have to see what happens with the Red Sox come spring, come the end of spring training and when opening day rolls around. That will do it for our episode here on the Bison Boys Podcast. Hope you all enjoyed, and we will see you guys next week. Thank you.